Patty Johnson. This is the podcast where we talk about how to get more shows, grants, and residencies. And it's also the podcast where we talk about all the conditions in the art world that affect your practice so that you know exactly how to respond to changes impacting all of us. And today on the program, we'll be discussing the Andy Warhol Foundation versus Goldsmith ruling of the Supreme Court with Luke Blackadar. Deputy Director of the Arts and Business Council, Luke heads up the legal department there. Luke, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Happy to chat with you. Yeah, I'm so glad that you have joined us to help me and everyone here unpack what this really means and how it affects artists. I did put together a a list of questions that I had after I read basically various news summaries in full transparency to everyone here. I have not read the extensive ruling and it's all of uh, the text associated with that. I haven't read the legal documents, but Luke has read a good portion of those. So we'll be talking about that. And just so everybody is kind of on the same page to start, basically in the Supreme Court decision, the, the court said that in 2016, when Prince Prince, uh, the artist hairs at the uh, artist, or the Andy Warhol Foundation licensed his uh, silkscreen version of the uh, Goldsmiths shot to Condé Nast after the artist's death. They didn't have the right to use the image without paying Goldsmith, who is the photographer. So a lower, lower court now will get to decide what she's owed by the foundation. And... It turns out that, and this is basically just what the New York Times said, this is Blake Gobnett, that that the majority actually had problems with, and what the decision is mostly about, was the Warhol's foundation failure to pay Goldsmith a licensing fee in 2016. And it looks like they sidestepped the issue of whether Warhol should have used her image at all. And just for context, this image was used in a Vanity Fair feature to celebrate Prince's life. And so the problem is that the image was used for illustration purposes rather than fine art. This is my interpretation. This is not the New York Times saying that. Like this is this is as I understand it. So basically when an appropriated image is used for the same purpose in the same market, a royalty needs to be paid. Now, Luke, can you tell me, uh, did I get that right or was that off? No, you got the, you got the general gist of it. So honestly, this whole thing kind of goes back to the 80s. So we had in 1980, 1983, 1984, we have Condé Nast, the company wants to license a portrait photograph that Lynn Goldsmith shot of the artist Prince. And he was relatively newish up and coming at the time. Um, you know, we want to do here at Condé Nast, we want to do an issue of Vanity Fair talking about kind of fame and what it does to celebrities and especially, you know, new and, and upcoming ones. We'd love to use your your photograph. And, you know, we have an artist who's going to do an adaptation of it. Do we have your permission? And she said, yeah, sure, fine. And if you read the opinion, uh, she was paid, I think, $400 at the time for it. 
And now fast forward to 2016, you know, the prince. So that's the full context yeah. then, right? Like that she produced the image and then Condé Nast is, and we're going to do an adaptation and Warhol is going to do that. So they were both commissioned by the, the magazine. Is that correct? Yes, they were both. The first one in 84 was commissioned directly from, by Condé Nast directly from Lynn Goldsmith. Yeah. And now we have the 2016 one that's at issue. And instead of going to Goldsmith, they've gone to the Warhol Foundation. And that's where a lot of this starts. Ah, interesting. Okay. I mean, even in my reading, somehow I missed that really important detail. <laughs> so I'm glad you're laying it out for us. Yeah, it, it, it started with Condé Nast had permission from Lynn Goldsmith to use the photograph. One-time use, it's going to appear in this one, I think no larger than like a half-page spread. Fine. Little does she know, the artist who's actually going to do the kind of adaptation of her uh, photograph for this original version of Vanity Fair is none other than Andy Warhol. So then we have uh, Prince passes away and Condé Nast wants to do a commemorative issue of Condé Nast magazine, The Genius of Prince. And they use one of Andy Warhol's silkscreen versions of the Goldsmith portrait uh, instead of going directly to Goldsmith herself. And that's what appears on, you know, magazine shelves. And that's where a lot of the dispute starts. And now the question is... Well, but here's the yeah. question that I have too. Who, like, who brought the original suit to the courts in the first place? Because <laughs> was it Goldstein or was it the Warhol Foundation? I thought it was the Warhol Foundation. Yeah, and that's a good catch. It was... Uh, the Andy Warhol Foundation actually sued Lynn Goldsmith for what is called declaratory judgment. Tell me what that is, because I do not know. So this is something that you see. So declaratory judgment is basically, I want the blessing from a court to basically say that my conduct here was not, you know, does not expose me to liability or, you know, I'm not liable or I have not done anything wrong. I basically am preempting Lynn Goldsmith from coming after me and suing me for copyright infringement. We saw this, another very familiar fair use case, we saw this years ago with Shepard Fairey. It's Shepard Fairey versus the Associated Press. He sued the Associated Press uh, for declaratory judgment because I want to kind of preempt the Associated Press from suing me for copyright infringement for using that iconic, now iconic, portrait of then-Senator Barack Obama uh, that became the iconic... Obama campaign hope poster. Um, so he sued, as uh, Warhol Foundation has sued Lynn Goldsmith, he sued the photographer, the actually owner of the photograph, because I'm using this and I believe that I'm justified in my use for it. I think that I should, I think that my, my use of this work is on the up and up. So I want to, in advance, get a federal court's blessing to say, yes, you are not liable for copyright infringement. Boom, you're all set, rubber stamp, seal of approval, good to go. That was what Andy Warhol Foundation's goal was. Does this seem, I hate to say this, not to put you on the spot, but does this seem like the kind of idea that a bunch of administrators might come up with? Like I like to me, like I like it seems like an awfully big expense mm -hmm. to be like, hey, uh, let's just be sure that I can do this. The context in the art and, you know, the arts and culture world 
you know, the big ones are Warhol Foundation and Shepherd Fairy. And the similarities between the two seem to me to be, hey, we've done this work, we've made this adaptation of someone else's intellectual property. You know, we've used someone else's creative work and we've created something that I think is going to get a lot of commercial attention. And I want to get out in front of this and not be sued six ways to Sunday for copyright infringement. So it does seem to me to be something that is kind of a risk management. So to to answer your question, yeah, kind of. It seems like kind of a risk management person was like, hey, let's get out in front of this because you could be exposed to pretty intense liability. Well, and that actually makes sense with the Warhol Foundation's Mm -hmm. history because they have that authentication board that was dissolved in 2011 because it was just a tremendous expense for them Mm -hmm. because everybody was suing them for their authentications that were or weren't, you know, if there was something that had a lot of money attached to it, which is basically any Warhol ever, like, you know, if somebody felt like their you know, questionable Warhol was not an actual Warhol. They'd take somebody mm-hmm. to court. So somebody being the foundation. Yeah. Someone there knew, hey, we've been asked by Condenast to use one of these portraits that you made based on a portrait that is well-known by a respected photographer, kind of outside and beyond the scope of the license that we were originally given. This is you know, following a major, major event in music and pop culture history, the death of Prince, I think what we're doing, I think we're fine. I think we're in the legal right here, but just in case, maybe we should get this settled up front and and just pull off the bandage now. And, you know, so we don't have to worry about getting hit with a copyright infringement lawsuit later. But that didn't really work out that well for them, did it? No, it didn't. In both cases, we had the the defendant, the photographer, countersue for copyright infringement. Hey, yeah, you know what? I think your use of my work actually did infringe my work. So I'm going to sue you for copyright infringement. And now we've not really avoided the hassle. Right. Now, is there a, like, how do I say this? But is there a right or a wrong side on this? Or maybe like a, another way to put this, especially for people who are listening to this particular program, mm-hmm. is like, what is the most artist-friendly version of this verdict? It depends on what type of artist you are. And, you know, one thing I'll mention is this is a decision, this is an opinion of the Supreme Court of the United States, which is in the legal world, it is an appeals court. So we are arguing and deciding rules of law and interpretations of rules of law. Ultimately, as you mentioned at the the top of the show, uh, this is going to get punted back down to a lower court, uh, you know, usually a United States district court, a trial court, in other words. And they're going to be the ones who decide facts on the ground, how much compensation was Lynn Goldsmith entitled to, et cetera. So we're really deciding abstract issues here. But the thing about this case is, It depends on what kind of artist you are, because there are artists on both sides of the V here. We have the Andy Warhol Foundation, which represents, you know, the, you know, the legacy of the artist Andy Warhol. And then you have Lynn Goldsmith, an individual independent uh, music photographer, music concert, rock and roll photographer. So I think the... The good and the bad slash diplomatic side of this is artists are served... The arts are served by either outcome, I think. It really is, which artists do we want to 
which artists do we want to favor? Which artists do we want to give a little bit more leeway to? In this case, you know, this opinion has landed on ultimately, spoiler, the ruling favored Lynn Goldsmith. You know, ultimately in this case, we're saying, you know, the originators of creative work, you know, the people who are actually kind of creating the original work that might later be adapted into some other use or some other type of work. Uh, those are the ones who are going to, you know, win the day here. Um, they're the ones whose rights have been kind of reaffirmed and solidified at the expense of, well, now you have, a, maybe you have a higher bar, you know, maybe you have a, some more barriers if you are a artist who focuses and, and primarily uses and relies upon existing work product to create your work. And, you know, Andy Warhol and, you know, the the Jeff Koonses and the, you know, Richard Princes of the world who are kind of very well-known artists who make millions and millions of dollars and have made millions of dollars off of works based on other existing source material are, you know, the ones who get a lot of the attention and the ones who are kind of the target of a lot of the ire of artists who are creating the original works. But, you know, we also have artists like, you know, collage artists, documentarians, you know, and others who routinely use in, in much more modest ways existing source material. Who is the, what is the impact on them remains to be seen. We don't know yet. We don't have any cases. We don't have uh, decisions yet that are the result in, in citing to uh, the Warhol Foundation case yet. Right. It... <laughs> I did the lawyerly thing of I talked for a long time without giving you the answer to your question. <laughs> I'm going to confess that I, uh, actually you spoke for so long that I had about three separate ideas to respond to. And now I don't have any, I've lost the tra train of thought entirely <laughs> through that. But there were, so there were a couple of things that kind of uh, came up for me now that I think the first thing was the way that you were talking about, you know, Jeff Koons and uh, the appropriation types of work that that some of these artists will do and they're in the press and, uh, you know, Richard Prince, I guess, is probably the poster child for this. But mm -hmm. but this seems like something uh, a more narrow ruling, though, right? Like, are, are we really talking about those artists when this is about like uh, a licensing issue for something that was like the things that seem different to me based on what you've said from say somebody like Jeff Koons or Richard Prince or whoever else. <laughs> for some reason, I can only name two appropriation artists of the zillions <laughs> out there. But is that uh, both were originally commissioned by a publication to make uh, the work, so one work builds off another, but they're both part of the same commission, which is not the same kind of financial ar arrangement that an appropriation artist would have. And then that the, uh, like the dispute starts in the reproduction of that thing rather than the dissemination of the original artwork, meaning like it's still okay for a billionaire to buy this uh, appropriated image in the form of a painting and you know nothing is owned to the to the photographer but it's it's not okay for a corporation to reproduce it so yes the so the cases are you know this particular 
this particular instance with Lynn Goldsmith and the Warhol Foundation, it is unique for a number of reasons. Uh, A a big part of it being what you said, well, we're dealing with pieces that were originally reproduced with permission and made with permission. And also one of the unique things that, you know, the majority opinion in the Supreme Court decision spends a lot of time on is that the the end use is the same. They both ended up in magazines. Both of the you know both of the works, the original uh, Warhol, the subsequent Warhol from 2016, and also Lynn Goldsmith's photographs. You know the the source material. They all ended up in magazines. So we were seeing the same kind of purpose. Uh, the thing that makes this case similar to some of those other appropriation artists is this question of. You know, Warhol Foundation, Jeff Koons, Richard Prince, they all rely upon fair use. They rely upon this legal principle of fair use in their different applications of and different uh, versions of their work. But that's the commonality between the two, between the, the, the all of these different cases. Okay. And just so we're clear, fair use means what? Fair use is... We probably should have use- done this at the beginning, but still... <laughs> Fair use is a, in the legal jargon, it is what's called an affirmative defense. Specifically, it's an affirmative defense against a claim of copyright infringement. So when you have copyright, copyright is fundamentally your power as an author, a creator, to control the dissemination of your work. So the big ones here is Lynn Goldsmith, I'm a photographer, I created work, my work is protectable by copyright, I have as Lynn Goldsmith, I have the sole exclusive authority to make copies, make derivatives, sell copies, sell derivatives, display, etc. That is my power as a content creator, as you know, a creative professional, as the author of this work. And when someone uses my work without my permission, then that's copyright infringement. Fair use is an affirmative defense against a claim of copyright infringement. Affirmative defense simply means I admit that the conduct that you're saying I did, I did. I did that. I took your work without your permission. I didn't ask. I used it without a license. However, I believe that I am justified in my use and that I should not be liable for infringement. So fair use is a defense. And uh, it's this idea that there are kind of, I think, two, two big fair use kind of justifications. One is I'm using your work for, you know, these kind of quote unquote, public capital P, public goods, commentary, criticism, scholarship, education, research, those kinds of things that make us a more informed and intellectual and, and you know, thoughtful culture. And then the other one is what we land on and what we spend a lot of time and what, you know, the Warhols, the Jeff Koons and the uh, Richard Princes, among others of the world rely on. And that is my work is transformative. I have taken your source material but the what I've done to it and my my injecting my own creative energy into it and my own creative discretion and judgment, I have now generated something totally new and distinct from what you are doing. It has a new purpose. It has a new message. It has a new meaning. It has a new interpretation. My work is so transformative that, you know, it should for all intents and purposes be treated as now its own independent work that stands on its own. So... That's kind of the two, uh, at least in my view, kind of the two main avenues of pursuing a defense of fair use. Either, you know, I'm doing this for public good or my work is different. It's not 
it's not really reflective of yours anymore. Right. And so if we're to apply the, sorry, if this is a little circular, we've already covered this, but if we're to (laughs) apply the fair use principle or legal Mm -hmm. uh, terminology, whatever the correct word is for that, which I do not know, to the, this particular ruling, what's the upshot of it? So ultimately, like, does it change it? Also, does it change our understanding of fair use in any way? I don't. I mean, the court will always say that, you know, our decisions are really kind of based on precedent and we're relying on on established rules. And basically, this should not come as a surprise to anyone. Of course, the our principles of law and our legal history all lead to this this decision. But ultimately, what they're they're focusing on fair use is a four-factor analysis. We look at what's the purpose of the use? What is the nature of the original work? Is it more creative, more kind of expressive, or is it more like informational based? Like, you know, I'm relying upon a work of, you know, creative fiction versus, uh, you know, a newspaper article or something like that that's communicating information. So nature of the original work, how much of the original work am I using? And what is the effect on the creator of the original or the market or the value for the original work? And, right. and this in this decision, we were really only concerned with that first factor. What is the purpose of the use? And that's where we were getting into that argument about, is it commercial versus is it, you know, uh, truly transformative, that kind of thing. And so, in this case, like, mm-hmm. it was commercial, right? Like, do we say that? Yeah, according to the majority opinion, they said, look, one, the purpose of both Lynn Goldsmith's portrait and the orange Warhol portrait of Prince, in this particular application, both had the same purpose. They were communicating portraits of Prince because it was newsworthy that this pop culture emperor just passed away. Um, and we're doing all these, you know, commemorative magazines and and retrospectives and stuff like that. Um, you know, both of these are for the purpose of one, communicating this is newsworthy, this is a portrait of this very, very famous person, and two, selling magazines. Selling, selling magazines. Yeah. That's the idea. And in this particular case, uh, the majority opinion really honed in on, uh, one, the purpose of Warhol's version and Lynn Goldsmith's version in this particular use, as it appears in magazines, were not different. Like, the purpose is the same. It's to communicate this, this image of this person. The dissent was... <laughs> what was the dissent? Because I, I definitely read clips of Kagan's response, which was uh, sort of, we care about which images are used. They're not all equal, or at least that's sort of what I took from that. And I wondered if you could expand, like turn that into something that actually applies to what we're talking about a little more directly. Yeah. So majority opinion says, look, Andy Warhol's use and Condé Nast's use of this orange prince is you know, it's not different from what Lynn Goldsmith's use of her original photograph is. And it's, it's commercial, you're using it to sell magazines. Justice Kagan, in her dissenting opinion, says, really, you're going to say that the works of someone of the caliber of Andy Warhol is not transformative. So we're spending a lot of time on this question of is Andy Warhol's portrait of Prince, the orange one, is it Merely derivative, meaning copyright infringement, or is it transformative? And Justice Kagan is saying, this is transformative. Look at it. It's communicating something 
completely different. And we have all of, you know, they, they go back to the testimony and the, the statements of the respective artists and even Condé Nast, uh magazine who say, look, the Lynn Goldsmith's original photograph of uh, Prince presents him as, you know, he's a new artist. He's a young artist. He's uncomfortable. He's vulnerable. We're seeing the human side of this person who is going to be something really big. Meanwhile, we have Condé Nast's licensed version created by Warhol that says, look at this, look at this person, you know, they're an icon. They're, they're not, they're not a person. You're not a person anymore. You are a product. You're a commodity. You're a celebrity. You're a star baby. Like you're, you're more of a product. And a big part of the dissenting opinion is those intentions and those messages communicated by the different images kind of suggests that what Warhol is doing is very different, is very transformative, you know, and that's even before we get into the actual, you know, physical, mechanical process of how he generated his silkscreen prints of them. I mean, the justices didn't ask my opinion, but... (laughs) (laughs) I can see, like, I can see the argument that, yeah, they have different purposes, but they operate Mm -hmm. in the same market. You know, like, uh, like to me, I can see the argument of the photographer saying like, hey, I deserve a cut of this too. Like this is, it's built on this. And even though the messages are different, I don't know, maybe I can't get that far along because maybe I don't believe what I'm saying anymore. Look, we don't get to the Supreme Court of the United States for open and shut cases. We get here because there are really persuasive arguments on both sides for both parties. There are really like... You could reasonably, for the most part, um, you could reasonably come to a conclusion that makes sense and could be well reasoned for both both parties. So it's it's you know there's a lot of I think there is a lot of persuasiveness to the Warhol Foundation's position of this isn't this isn't just you know, a copy or a derivative. This isn't merely a derivative of Lynn Goldsmith's photograph. We've made something new with this. I think it can be a persuasive argument. And there's also a very strong argument of, no, it's so obvious that you used my original work and you used it without permission and that, you know, you didn't do enough to change it. So a lot of this kind of, uh, you know, what we're expecting out of this decision was really more of like, okay, how far do we have to go? How far do we have to derive before a work becomes truly transformative in its own separate work. I don't think we really got that answer here. I think the majority opinion said, well, yeah, you're using it in the same market. Condé Nast could have and should have just rightfully gone to Lynn Goldsmith and said, can we use that portrait for our commemorative issue? But they didn't. So, you know, it's a commercial enterprise. It's for a for-profit purpose of selling magazines, selling Condé Nast commemorative magazines. And in this particular context, the purpose of the works are the same. You know, orange prints versus that original black and white portrait. They're both, we're focusing on prints. We're focusing on the artist prints. And they're both saying the same thing. And we have this commercial element. So we're happy to say that, no, this isn't, this doesn't satisfy that first fair use factor. Right. So... Just, I guess to like shift gears maybe a little bit, when we think about like the implications for artists, you know, I, I think I sent you an article by Catherine uh, DeVos Devine, and Mm -hmm. she mentioned a little, she's, she talked about AI and fair use and the kind of assumption that 
um, basically like software companies operate under the assumption that fair use would apply because they're taking something and then completely transforming it, which sure. Um, but there's a bunch of artists out there that are now like, Hey, you know, what about all my work that like, this is kind of not that cool. Mm -hmm. And her thought was that this, if I'm understanding it properly, like this ruling might have some implications down the road for artists in that boat. And I wondered if, I mean, you're not her, but I wondered if you could talk a little bit about like just the ways in which this ruling could affect artists in the future. So, yeah, I think one thing, and it's, it is a fairly narrow opinion, but I think we do have kind of some sense of where the goalposts are for uh, what is a transformative fair use. We know at least in, you know, when you see these works, you know, like Andy Warhol's adaptation of Lynn Goldsmith's, we know that, okay, for this kind of commercial use, you know, republishing it in in magazines or other kind of profit-centered profit-driven enterprises, we know that this doesn't, this isn't transformative enough. You know, your silkscreen okay. version, it's not transformative enough. So I think in that regard, this gives artists who are creating original source material a little bit more strength and a little bit more justification for when we find that my work is being, you know, my photograph is being sold on like, you know, I uploaded my photograph to my portfolio, someone took it, and now they're putting it on napkins or merchandise or whatever. They're doing it without my permission. Well, okay, that's not gonna that's not gonna win a fair use argument, no matter how much you at least if you transform it to kind of <laughs> the extent someone like Warhol did, that's not gonna be enough. You know, if you yeah. if you put it through a filter nowadays or put it, you know, do this kind of translation of it to even a different kind of medium, that very well might not be enough. So your answer is that it could like you didn't say this, but I'll rephrase it. You could tell me whether it's okay. But that that this could be positive for people who find that their work is appropriated. And like one of the reasons I ask this is like a, you know, I run a membership called Network. Recently, um, somebody in my membership was like, you know, uh, some an AI bot has used my work without my permission. It's been incorporated into something. And now when I Google my name, it's the first thing that comes up, this like rehashed version. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, she doesn't know how to get rid of it. Perhaps that is a different question. Maybe it doesn't pertain to fair use at all. But the, I think the question is like, you know, what kind of legal tools does a artist have at their disposal to combat uh, use without their permission? Like, does this help? In the AI issue, we're kind of still in, at least in terms of like legal enforcement, kind of in the Wild West. Like, I think we're starting, there are, I think, some lawsuits, uh, copyright infringement lawsuits against some of these AI like generators, these AI repositories. Um, I don't know what the outcome of those are. We don't, we don't know what they're going to be yet. I've, I believe those lawsuits are still pretty early stage. But that's going to be one thing that says this is going to it's going to be a fair use question. It's going to it's going to come back to this question from uh, Warhol and Goldsmith of is this transformative? OK, your work is one of a uh, hundred or a thousand 
that is used to generate this output? How can you possibly, how can you even pick your work out of, you know, the, the end product? And that's going to be one question. In the case of your member whose work is pretty identifiably visible and you can see it and identify it in that AI generated piece, it's a little bit clearer. But I mean, ultimately, the artist, an artist tool to stop another person from using their work, exploiting their work without their permission is ultimately legal action, copyright infringement. And you see this filing a copyright infringement suit, rather, not not committing copyright infringement. But, you know, that's the that's the kind of the nuclear option. It is, you know, suing, hey, I'm the owner of this work and I didn't give you permission to use this work. And, you know, we still, fair use is a squishy Squishy argument. If the person who's using the work says, well, I think it's a fair use. I think I'm, you know, I've transformed it or I've done this or that. It's a squishy subjective argument. Uh, As you can see from we have 36 pages saying it's not transformative and we have 38 pages saying it is. Well, and this this also did lead me to another question that is sort of maybe adjacent, but similar. Like, you know, I think a while ago, Pete Souza, President Obama's photography mm-hmm. photographer, was like famously threatened by a uh, like copyright uh, enforcer called Copy Tracker for an image yeah. that he had taken. Like, and so they wanted him to take down his own image and were threatening legal fees and the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Actually, it probably wasn't that much, but. I think what is it? The legal limit is like thirty, thirty something thousand dollars. Yeah, I'm out. yeah. So, but my concern, I guess, when I first saw this too, was like, could this embolden these like copyright trolls? Because we have, I also have a lot of artists inside the membership who have received threats for yeah. images they've used that mm-hmm. are in fact their own making those things go away can be expensive. Will it embolden copyright trolls? I doubt it. Not not any more than they already are emboldened. I mean, look, if your (laughs) business model is, I'm not creating anything original. I'm not putting anything good into the world. I'm just making a profit off of someone else's creative endeavors and just kind of being a middleman. It's like, you've already kind of cast your lot. And that's, that's, you know, uh, we don't, we don't look upon copyright non-practicing entities is the legal term for them. We don't look at them with uh, a lot of uh, mm, oh, non-practicing entities. Basically, it's it's like one part legit and like one part almost a total joke of like you know entities that don't you they they buy up copyrights or they buy up intellectual property protections. You see it a lot in the patent world. Uh. They don't do anything with it. They don't use it. They don't exploit it. They just. They just buy it so that they can sue people, send cease and desists, and and get settlement offers for copyright infringement. A lot of you see this a ton in kind of the stock photography world with a lot of yeah. like, you know. So exact, I I'm almost certain I I probably could recognize the name of the law firm that sends the cease and desist letters to the artists who's are getting cease and desists for their own work. So no, I don't think it will embolden the copyright trolls any more than they already are sufficiently emboldened. Like they're, and part of it is because the, like AI, they rely on technology. They rely on kind of predictive technology and, you know, uh, you know, learning and things like that. 
um, in order to identify, hey, this work looks like something that's in our repository of, of registered works that we have to enforce, et cetera. So we just automatically flag it. And then, you know, a law firm somewhere gets a, a ping like, hey, you got to send a cease and desist letter. So the thing is, fair use, copyright infringement and fair use are particularly fair use are such subjective, so subjective analyses. They are so, so human and they really do require a uh, fact specific analysis, but technology isn't really good at nuance or kind of subjectivism um, and making, you know, uh, exceptions for special occasions and, and certain circumstances. So I think it's more of a technology problem than a legal problem, but I think it's a technology problem that creates a legal problem. But no, I don't, I don't, I don't think it will necessarily embolden the trolls. I think it's, I think a lot of the copyright troll stuff is dumb technology, smart, smart AI and predictive technology that is just, it's kind of dumb. It's bright, but dumb. (laughs) (laughs) It's very bright. It's very fast, but it's also kind of dumb and doesn't have an eye for nuance. Well, Luke, I want to, I think we can wrap things up. I wanted to ask you whether like just before we ended the the program, whether there's anything that you feel like in this case is really important for artists to kind of take home, like anything that that they should know about that we haven't touched on already. I think the big things for artists to take away, artists on both sides, artists who are from the Lynn Goldsmith camp of my work is being used by someone else and artists from the Andy Warhol Foundation camp. I am someone whose livelihood is relying upon existing source material to create my work. Uh, I think that one of the big things I want you to take from this is, look, the opinion, there are 30, 38 pages saying why it's not fair use and 36 pages saying why it is, why it should be fair use. There are very, very brilliant world-class lawyers who are split on this who really justifiably think that the case should have come the other way. And I think this should illustrate, you know, it is a very fact-specific analysis. And the other piece is, this case is very narrow in scope. Can I ask a question about this? Like, uh, as somebody who does not have a lot of background at all, like, you said 36 pages for each side. Is there like a normal amount of pages that normally come with a legal ruling like no. w- what constitutes like like a relatively short one? Oh man uh i mean if you want to get really really short it's like you know uh you could have one that's within like a couple pages that's just like yep we agree with we think that the lower court the the united states court of appeals got it totally right no notes here you go but it really depends, I think, on the significance of the case. I think this is one that is going to have, because it was a highly anticipated case, there were a lot of stakeholders and and people with opinions and support on both sides, um, and the court was really strongly encouraged to take on this case. I think they felt the need to deliver a really lengthy, both, both uh, kind of opinion camps felt they needed to really justify their ruling and their decisioning and their reasoning here. But I, no, the opinion... This length doesn't surprise me, especially for the kind of uh, notoriety that this case was receiving and the importance for uh, the creative and the intellectual property sector. Um, but no, I mean, it, you, hey, there are 80% of the cases that we don't 
hear about or care about that are just kind of routine decisions that are decided uh, unanimously, you know, those are pretty short, but it's these ones like this, you know, the ones that are going to change the way we think about things and kind of have a major rippling effect. These are the ones where you're going to see a lot of attention and a lot of, a lot of uh, lengthy analysis and explanation. And so, and according uh, like based on what you've said previously, it sounds like we don't know what all the um, implications for this will be just yet. Or not yet. We know right now that, hey, in this very narrow circumstance of you use someone's photograph for something that that artist reasonably could have used it for, and you used it to profit, that's really your quote unquote kind of modest changes and alterations that you've made to it are not enough to survive this first fair use factor of why are you using it? You have to do more. You have to transform it more. You have to really be communicating and using it in a different way. You can't put it on a competing magazine cover. Like, you know, the other takeaway is this is a, this decision is narrow in scope and the Supreme court of the United States usually, they usually do try to say, we want to keep our decision narrow to really this specific set of circumstances, um, unless it's truly important. And we feel that we do need to, kind of have a regime change. But judges and courts, specifically the Supreme Court of the United States, are relatively conservative in terms of we don't like to rock the boat if we don't have to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, that's a whole other can of worms. Yeah. It's uh, probably for a different <laughs> podcast. But <laughs> Well, I want to thank you so much uh, for coming on this sh show, Luke. Uh, it's been really, really fantastic to have you. And I will put everything for those of you who are listening in the show notes. And Luke, where can people find you if they are looking to connect? Yeah, they can find me at, I'm at the Arts and Business Council of Greater Boston. So you can find, you know, about the work that we do and the work that I do at artsandbusinesscouncil.org. And it's also a really great place if you're an, an artist, a creative small business, and you need assistance with stuff like this, stuff like the stuff we've talked about. Um, and you want a lawyer to kind of help walk you through this and kind of explain things that's what we're here to do and we love to help and, and we're here to serve well fantastic thank you so much thank you for listening if you like the show please leave a review and share it with a friend it really helps get that valuable information out to more artists just like you you can find all of the names and the links that we reference in this conversation at workshop.art slash podcast.